I, I, there was a time uh, as a younger Christian when I, I didn't really understand why someone would not follow Jesus. Like, why wouldn't you be a Christian? Um, it's, it's great. There is forgiveness of sins. Jesus died for your sins. You are forgiven the promise of heaven, promise of eternal life, and it comes to you freely, without cost. Why would you not get in on this? There's still a sense in which I believe that. I, 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 I understand that. But there's, as time has gone on, I've, I've begun to think that Maybe I understand a little bit more why people would not want to follow Jesus. I'm going to try to f- put that in the, in the right kind of context, the right kind of conversation here. But, because I think there's a sense in which the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the opponents of Jesus in his day, and those who are hesitant to follow Jesus now, are somehow hearing Jesus a little more clearly than I did as a new Christian. Because as Jesus describes what your relationship to him will be like, what will it be like to be in covenant relationship with Jesus? He puts it out plainly. He will be to you king or nothing. It is in stark and absolute terms that he lays out the conditions of the relationship. He is Lord or he is not your savior. Now, I, I used to think that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you know, as I thought this through, that the opponents of Jesus, the Herodians, as they come to him one after another in the Gospels, and in this passage in particular, it's almost like I, I would kind of read it like, like as if they're kind of just caricatures. Like, like people wouldn't really oppose, like they wouldn't keep coming and bringing their objections. Like, and, and it wasn't until I, I have lived for some time as a Christian and I've realized that The furthest thing from a joke or an exaggeration, what these people are representing is actually a dialogue that's existed in my heart for a long time. A a continual fight with Jesus about whether or not he actually will be king. Whether his claim to lordship in my heart will be uncontested. Jesus, you know, you've seen this in the last few chapters of Matthew's Gospels. We've gone through it, right? Jesus is the one who marches into Jerusalem, surrounded by children and the crowds coming with him, and they're declaring his praises, and he, and he receives them. And, and he comes into the temple, walks right into the temple, hearing these praises, and he won't stop them from praising him. He walks right into the place where the Sadducees hold court, where the high priests rule in the temple, and he starts turning over tables and kicking people out and claiming authority in the place where they treasured authority. He walks right into the temple and says, I'll be king here. And then as he walks out of the temple and reflects on the hard-heartedness of the people who are there, he curses the fig tree, a prefiguring of the authority that he has as one to judge the worship of God's people, the very temple itself. Bold and audacious authoritative claims over everything. 
And so he's challenged on that. The religious leaders challenge him. They don't, they don't like this notion. They don't like what they see of Jesus claiming authority. And so they, they challenge him, by what authority do you do these things? And he says, well, you, you, if you were honest, would already know that. It's the same authority as John the Baptist. It's authority that comes from heaven itself. And then he tells them three parables to try to drive the point home. He tells them, first of all, a parable of two sons who, who receive commandments from the Father. And what distinguishes the two sons? Well, one obeys. And the other one doesn't. There's two choices. Do you obey or do you not? One will be honored. One will not. And he doubles down on that. And he tells a parable about the tenants who, who, who are leasing a field but begin to act like they own it. Like they don't have to give all the fruit and all the rewards, all the payment to the king or to the landowner who actually owns that land. And so when the messengers come to collect the fruit that's due to the owner, they persecute them. They kill them. So the owner sends his son, and they persecute him, and they kill him as well. And Jesus tells what's going to happen to those who do not submit to the authority of the one who has rightful ownership. They will be destroyed. And then Jesus tells another parable. This time it's a wedding feast, a king who throws a feast for his son. The son is getting married. The feast is happening. These ones who are invited but refuse to honor and obey the king and come to the feast will be punished. There's a clear contrast. Jesus is laying it out for us again and again, over and over, insisting and doubling down. He will be king or he will be nothing. There's no middle ground. In truth, these religious leaders who oppose Jesus, they're reflecting our hearts and the internal conflict of will we accept Jesus' lordship. What I think Matthew is trying to show us this morning, if we have ears to hear, is that we can only rightfully follow Jesus as king when we understand, first of all, that he already is king. That a life of rightly ordered obedience comes as we begin to understand him for who he actually is. That who he is is going to make sense of the claims that he makes over us. But first of all, he reemphasizes some claims that he makes over us, beginning with this. Jesus, in this passage, calls us, first of all, to a hard obedience. A hard obedience. When, when you call people to a hard obedience, it is normal to expect a bit of a fight. Um, I've heard several parents make comments over the years that they believe their children are going to grow up to be lawyers. <laughs> Specifically, why? Because they have all the reasons, all the arguments why they don't need to submit, why they don't need to follow, why they don't need to obey. We can, we can put up a pretty good fight. Um, I, I used to work at a place in the city um, that may or may not have been responsible for the running of all the public schools in the city of Toronto. Uh, which shall not be named, but I worked on a work crew, and I remember f laughing with some of the guys because we would work on this crew, and they would spend more time working, working to try to come up with excuses of why we couldn't do the job we were given than just actually doing the job that we were given. It's, it's funny in the human heart when we receive commands that we perceive to be hard, we come up with all kinds of reasons why we don't have to obey those commands. The religious leaders here are doing the same thing. The reason that they want to go with here is they want the speaker. They want Jesus, the giver of the commands. They want him discredited. Verse 15, then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. They want to discredit him. 
They, they, they want no one to take him seriously so that they can get away with not obeying his commands. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know, now you, you just know, right? Like this is dripping with irony here. We know that you are true. You teach the way of God truthfully. If there was like a sarcastic font, this would be the place for it, right? You don't care about anyone's opinion. You're not swayed by appearances. Now the, the situation that they're asking about is a poll tax that's respond, that all Jews are responsible for paying to the Romans who are ruling over the Jewish people, though the Jewish people don't want them to. And this is a tax that's required of every single adult Jew, slave or free citizen or not, male or female. Regardless, every single person has to pay the tax. And they ask him this question in verse 17, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? They're aware that they are standing here with representatives of different political parties who have vested interests on every side. So whatever Jesus says, this is like a political hot potato, he is going to offend somebody. And they've made sure, they've sort of set the situation up with both Herodians, representative of the ruling class where Jesus is from, and the Pharisees, representative of the Jewish people who don't want to be under the Roman authority. They've made sure to set this up that someone will be offended. Jesus responds this way, I love this, verse 18. Aware of their malice, he said, why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Um... And then he, he shows their hypocrisy to everyone. He says, show me the coin for the tax. The, the coin that's, that's debatable. See, this, is, this coin is so offensive. I'm going to explain in a second. It's so offensive to the Jewish people that they had to get a special dispensation from Rome to have their own money printed, essentially. But there was, they still had to use this coin in particular to pay this tax to Rome. It was the only coin that would have been accepted for this tax. And so what Jesus is doing is he's saying to them, they're like, hey, hey, we're too spiritual to pay this tax. Jesus, what about you? And Jesus is like, I don't know. Do you got a coin? And they have the coin on them. You get that, right? Jesus does he's not the one who's got the coin. They've got the coin. He's pointing out their own hypocrisy. Oh yeah, I got one right here. So much for their show and their pretense of religiosity. Whose likeness and inscription is on this, Jesus asks. And they said Caesar's. Here's, here's the reality of this coin. They've actually, um, this is one of those cool archaeological things they've, they've found, and they actually have coins. And, and so, so you can look at it, and on the one side, it has a picture of Caesar, and it, and it describes him as the, uh, the son of the divine, son of God. And you flip it over, it gets better. You flip it over on the other side, it says high priest. This is crazy, right? So you've got this coin that's a Roman coin that the Jews are mandated to use to pay their tax to a pagan authority. Reminder of they've got these pagan authorities who are so opposed to their religious practice, to their religious freedom, that that they make them use money that actually has an image, which again, remember, the commandments of the Jewish people, the Ten Commandments, they're not supposed to have a graven image. Here's a graven image of this guy that says, Son of God and High Priest. Every detail about this coin is so offensive. One commentator says it's almost impossible to imagine something more carefully designed to offend all Jewish sensibilities than this coin. So do we pay it? Do we acknowledge Rome's lordship over us? Jesus says whose image is on it. They say Caesar's. It was his picture on it. 
So Jesus says, then render. I think a better translation is give back. Give back. Give back to Caesar what is his. The things that are his belong to him, so give them to him. It's not a matter of the kingdom of heaven. It's the rulers of the earth, delegated by God to carry out their duties. You're required to submit to them. Give back to Caesar what was already his in the first place. And give to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled. And they left him and they went away. It's, it's in one sense a startlingly, startlingly simple answer, right? But it astounds them in its simplicity because Jesus is just saying, do the hard thing and obey. Submit to the authority that you don't want to submit to because it's been established by God. There's all kinds of reasons why obedience is hard as a Christian. Sometimes obedience is hard, not because the thing is hard, um, but just because you're called to a long obedience, right? Like loving your kids is, is not hard. Loving your spouse is not hard. It's the fact that you have to do it every day. And it's just again, 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 on and on. Uh, obedience can be hard because it's long. Obedience can be hard because it's costly. Um, I used to work a job that was, um, it was in the service industry, and you make all your money on tips. <laughs> You're going to pay tax on that? It's not reported. It's not recorded. It's all cash. I'm choosing to pay money? Really? I'm choosing to pay money that no one's going to know whether I pay or not? Obedience sometimes is hard. Watch the money go out from your account. It can be costly. Obedience, obedience can be hard because it's embarrassing. There's all kinds of ways following Jesus is embarrassing. I don't have to give you examples of that. Obedience can be hard just because sometimes it seems unjust. It just seems gross. It does not seem like the kind of thing we want to do. Take Caesar's coin and pay for Caesar. Caesar's already rich. He's already ruling over us. Really? You want us to give coins to Caesar, that pagan? Really? It just feels gross. It feels unjust. We didn't elect him. We didn't put him there. How about forgiveness? You know Jesus calls us to forgiveness. Man, but, but you don't understand the evil that was done to me. Yeah, I get it. That's, that's, the, that's the reason why forgiveness is required, right? If something bad wasn't done to you, then there would be no cause for forgiveness. It's hard. It feels wrong. It still feels unjust. Why should I absorb the cost for someone else's disobedience? I'm called to love my neighbors, called to love my coworkers, called to love church members, these people around me who just keep making my life more difficult. On and on it goes. The commands of Jesus are hard, but he calls us to it. It's not just hard obedience. <laughs> It's great. It gets, in case that, you're like, oh, no, I got that. I got that. There's more. He calls us to a humbling obedience. Jesus calls us to a humbling obedience. You ever been um, publicly wrong about something? 
I, I had this experience uh, a little while ago in a group chat with the uh, worship leaders. It was great. Uh, one of the guys was like trying to figure out something he was trying to do. He's doing, dil- you know, his diligent work. And he's planning a few weeks ahead. He's trying to pick a hymn. And he's like, hey, do we do this tune for this hymn? And he records it, it a little bit and puts it in the chat. And, and I'm, I'm immediately like, no, I'm on this, guys. Let me explain a few things to you. And so I'm like, no, we don't do that tune. We do this other one. Which other one? Well, I don't know. Let me find it. And I go down this rabbit hole of like trying to find this tune. And in the meantime, all the other guys are like, hey, Julian, I, I think it's that tune. I'm like, no, no, no. You guys don't understand. And so I'm explaining to them about meters and tunes and hymns and all these things, like to the musicians, right? And, uh, and, and then anyway, at the end of the day, it was that tune. So like now I got to, like after all this debate, I got to circle back and be like, yeah, okay, maybe you were, you were right at the beginning, right? And, and like it's, it's just like it's, it's funny because like, hey, you're an idiot. Why did you think you knew music better than the musicians? But like it's really not funny because I still don't even want to talk about that story because it's embarrassing, right? When you have to admit that you were wrong, like it's hard. It's humbling. That's what Jesus is, is calling the Sadducees to here as well. Verse 23, the same day. All this is back to back. It's one after another. The Sadducees came to him. Listen to how the Sadducees are described. This is how they're defined. This is how they're known. Who are the Sadducees? They are those who say that there is no resurrection. <laughs> What's true about them? Well, this is their theology. What's their theology? No resurrection. This is, this is going to be really important as you keep going through here. There's no resurrection. They hold to the authority of the books of the Torah, the first five books, and, and tend to reject doctrine that's developed in the later Psalms and prophets and wisdom literature. And they, they don't believe in angels and demons and spiritual beings. But here's what they're known as. They're, they're those who know, they're known as. They distinguished from the Pharisees by this. They say there's no resurrection. So, so they say, hey, Jesus. And they're going to quote from the Torah, from the Pentateuch, from the first five books. And they're going to describe this situation where under leverate marriage, um, if an older son has a wife and doesn't give her children but then dies, the next in line, the next son was supposed to marry her to give children for in the name of his brother. That's, that's not as weird in that context. I mean, it is still weird, but it's like not as weird in that context as you would think. It's supposed to be merciful because what it does is it allows the inheritance of the land to continue on down through that lineage so that the inheritance of God's people would never be lost but would be faithfully passed on to every generation. And that widow would be cared for by a son who would grow up and provide for her in her old age. It was merciful. It was a, dis- a display of social justice in God's community. And, and so they want to make it seem ridiculous then. They say, well, one son and then another, all the way down, seven brothers. They all had her, no children, and then they're dead. Now this resurrection, Jesus, if there's such a thing as this resurrection existence, like, come on, let's be real here. Was she going to have seven husbands? Or which one of them gets her? The rest of the six guys have to be single in heaven? This is the problem that they lay out to Jesus. And the confidence which, with, with which they lay it out means it's probably an argument that they didn't just come up with on the spot. Like This is probably one of their go-tos in their debates. Um, Jesus answered them in verse 29. (laughs) How would you like to hear this? You got your best answer. You lay it out there, your best argument, and someone just says, you're wrong. (laughs) Like in front of everybody, you're wrong. You are wrong because, here it gets even better, you don't know the Bible or God. Like, that's, that's, that's pretty strong, right? Like, this, this is what they're known. They're the Sadducees, so they're the leaders of the temple, the rulers of the temple, so they should probably know the Bible and God. Like, these are probably, if anything, these are the two things that they should know. And Jesus says, these are the two things that you do not know. That's why you are wrong. You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. 
He's going to explain for verse 30, in the resurrection, they, are, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. He's teasing out the power of God, first of all. <laughs> and he's saying, you're limiting the power of God in the resurrection, in the resurrected realm, in the resurrected existence, in the resurrected economy to what you've seen in this creation, as if new creation isn't going to be an entirely different thing. In, in this creation, male and female were created in the image and likeness of God to rule and to reign over creation and to expand his kingdom. How? By being fruitful and multiplying, by filling the earth and subduing it. In the new creation, which is already populated with image bearers, there's no need for multiplication. There's no need for childbearing. God's power is going to be revealed in entirely new and greater ways. Now, this should be a word of comfort for us. I want to offer a word of comfort for us here on a few different fronts because it reminds us that those who live a single life here will in no way be at any kind of deficit in the resurrection. Also, those of us who have had multiple spouses in this life can rest assured that what God has for us in the next life is better than anything we have experienced here or could even begin to imagine here. For those of us who are in precious marriages that we love, with a spouse that we love and we adore, and we cannot fathom how, a jo- how an existence could be joyous apart from being married to my spouse, understand the point is that the power of God is not to create something less or something that's deficient, but something that's greater, something that's even more blessed, that takes all the things that you love about your marriage, being known, being intimate, being treasured, being loved, and loving in return, and knowing in return, and having absolute freedom and freedom from barriers in your relationship, you'll have that so much more in the new creation, not just with a spouse, but with all the believers, all the sons and daughters of God. The power of God should be blowing our minds as we contemplate the resurrection and the experience that will be greater than anything we could think or imagine in this life. Jesus says it'll be different. We'll be like the angels. He doesn't say we'll be angels. He says we'll be like the angels in that we are not married or given in marriage or bear children. So then he turns his attention, having thought about the power of God to the scriptures to explain the Bible to them. Verse 31, as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read? This is another like, ooh, this is another dig, right? Like every time Jesus does this, you kind of cringe a little bit. Hey, did you ever read the Bible? You know, religious leaders, like, have you read this? And he quotes to them from the Torah, from the Pentateuch, from the books that they claim are authoritative. And he says to them, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. I just want to pause for a minute here as an aside. As Jesus is challenging them on having read the scriptures, understood the scriptures, and, and, and reflect a little bit on how essential the scriptures are for the life of a Christian. Because there's something remarkable that's happening sort of below the surface. It's not the main argument. It's the way Jesus argues. The scriptures are so vital and so authoritative and so important. Look at the way Jesus describes it. He says, have you not read what was said to you, 
Now understand, this was the voice of God speaking to Moses at the burning bush. But, but Jesus' theology of the scriptures is such that when God speaks in the scriptures, he speaks to you, to the people of God. What is written here is a gift that is to you. It is spoken to you by God. Jesus believes in the inspiration of scripture. That the text, the words of scripture were breathed out by God. These words are God's words given to you. And then he's going to tease out this argument by an implication of what's said here. That he is, I am the unchanging God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It matters that he doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Even the verb tense communicates theology. Every little bit of what is inspired in scriptures matters for how we understand God. Later on in verse 43, Jesus is going to lay out another question for the people who hear. And he's going to say, how is it that David in the spirit says, and he affirms for us what we understand to be the way inspiration works. That a human author carried along by the spirit of God writes words that are authoritative, that are perfect. That are always correct. David, in the Spirit, by the Spirit, by the working and power of the Spirit, wrote the Psalms. This is how Jesus builds his theology, or this is how Jesus builds his arguments based on his theology of Scripture. So friend, all that to say, you need to pick this up. When you read this, you need to pick this up and understand that it is the word of God, from God, to you, breathed out by God, written by human authors, but perfect and authoritative and trustworthy. That's how Jesus lived, and that's how we have to live as well. But now to the argument, Jesus, as he explains the scriptures, says to them, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. The point here is simply this. God is a God who has entered into covenant relationship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and by implication, all of us who have entered into covenant with him, And since he is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living, then all those in covenant with him must also be living. The point is this, steadfast love and faithfulness of God must be poured out on us because they've been promised to us. And he is not finished yet by the time you die. This this life that we're living now is like a cup that's being filled up with the blessings, the covenantal blessings of God. And he's got so much more than can fit in the cup of this life. It's going to keep pouring over. God has to raise you from the dead because he's got more love to give you, more faithfulness to show you, more grace to pour out on you. This life is not enough to show the glorious grace of God. And so he has to raise his people so that he can keep being faithful to his covenant. This is astounding. The power of God, the testimony of the scriptures is that we will live. It's a glorious hope for us, but the upshot for the Sadducees is what Jesus said. You are wrong. This is what they hate. It's not just the theological piece. It's the fact that they are wrong. And for them now to follow Jesus, if any of them are going to convert and follow Jesus... They're going to have to publicly confess that they were wrong about the very things that defined them in their disobedience. That stings. It's not just the Sadducees. When the Pharisees came 
When John was preaching, John the Baptist, he said, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. When the rich young ruler came, Jesus said, sell all that you possess and give it to the poor and come follow me. When the tax collectors come and follow him, they have to give up their sin, their profession, all that they were known for and come and follow Jesus. Friend, here's the reality. The life of a Christian begins with baptism, which is a public testimony. I was wrong. But now I'm following Jesus. The ongoing Christian life, every time we take the Lord's Supper, we look at each other, we look at the bread, and we remember, I was wrong. So I need Jesus' body and blood given for me. James 5 calls us to confess our sins to one another, to continue to confess, I was wrong. You can't exist in a marriage, you can't exist as a parent without time and again being able to say, I was wrong. Forgive me. And now I'm going to walk in repentance. Jesus calls us to a humbling obedience. There will be no shortage as a Christian, no shortage of things to own if you follow him. He calls us to this hard and humbling obedience, but he calls us to it. He calls us to it in a unique way. Not, not a begrudging way. Like, that would be okay. That would be one thing, right? If it was like, okay, fine, I'll admit I'm wrong. But or, or, okay, fine, I'll do the hard thing. And I do it with a grumbling heart. But listen to what Jesus demands of us next. Jesus next calls us to a wholehearted obedience. A wholehearted obedience. You know what this word is for? This word is for those of us who, like me, um, can acknowledge, okay, fine, I was wrong, and I know this is the right thing to do, and so I'm just going to do it. I may not want to do it, but it's the right thing, so I'm going to do it. Well, Jesus is going to speak to that. It's also for those of you who are a little bit different, those of you who function with a little more like passionate integrity, where you're like, if I don't feel it, if I don't feel it, if my heart's not in it, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> See, Jesus, he wants obedience, so he's calling you to do it. But he wants wholehearted obedience, so he wants your affections as well. This passage, it, cha it challenges all of us. Look what Jesus says when they come and challenge him again. Verse 36, the teacher who's one of the Pharisees comes to him and asks him, what's the great commandment? What's the heavy, what's the weighty commandment? This is a theological debate in Jesus' day. What are the heavier, what are the weightier commandments of the law? And what are the lighter commandments of the law? We're trying to rank them, figure out categories for them all. Which one's the great, the heavy, the weighty one? Jesus says this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole, or depend all the law and prophets. Jesus quotes here uh, the great commandment. It comes from a passage where we hear uh, something known as the Shema, which uh, faithful Jews were supposed to recite to themselves or out loud every day. It was written on their phylacteries, the things that they'd have on their clothes, their forehead, on the post of their house. It was supposed to be something that was known. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, Yahweh our God, the Lord is one. 
an implication, the result of that, the application of that truth that God is one, is that you shall be also one. You shall love him with all that you have, with your heart, with your soul, with your mind, with your strength. It's not supposed to be teasing out different dynamics of what makes up a human. He's not trying to teach anthropology. Well, we're made up of a mind, and we're made up of strength, and so we're supposed to read, and we're also supposed to serve. That's not what he's getting at. What he's getting at is because God is one, he is indivisible. He is perfectly one. His passions, his thoughts, his desires, his will, his affection, his actions, all of this are an expression of his oneness. So also those created in his image to worship him should love him so much that all our desires, all our affections, all our passions, all our thoughts, everything would be unified in our love of him so that obedience flows from an undivided heart. So that we love him with all that we are, with every ounce, every, as one commentator says, every globule of our being. I don't know what a globule is, but it sounds good. Everything that makes us up as humans is united in our love for him. He wants all of us. And this, this really, you know, this comes full circle in this passage. Because do you remember when Jesus, just a few minutes ago, when Jesus was addressing the initial challenge about whether they should pay taxes to Caesar or not, he said, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. But the question was never asked, well, then what is God's? If, if the answer to the first question was, well, where's Caesar's image, then the answer to the second question surely is, where's God's image? Where's his name written? What belongs to him is those who are created in his image and likeness. All of what we have, heart, soul, mind, and strength, united in our love and our affection and our obedience to him. Such that when we see his image, the image of him who we love in others created in his image and likeness, we love them too. As those who reflect the one we ultimately love. So that the whole law and prophets hang on this. It's like a peg. These commandments are like a peg that all the rest hang on. See, Jesus doesn't say that love replaces the law. You don't need law if you've got love. What he says is that love animates the law so that now as you love God with his wholehearted love, you can actually obey. You can walk in obedience in ways that are meaningful and pleasing to God. Because all your obedience apart from love means nothing. It's a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. See, Jesus, he rejects your rebellion. He also rejects your heartless obedience. He wants all that you do to be from love and for love. How can you do that? How can you do this hard, humbling obedience with a whole heart? It's only when you see that Jesus calls us to know him who demands obedience. You, you, you can only walk in this kind of obedience when you understand the one who's calling you to this obedience, when you see him, when you know him, when you grasp who he actually is. See, if someone you know, has some flashing lights and they pull you over on the side of the road and they ask you for ID and they start asking you questions and they want to look at your papers, you might want to ask them to see a badge if they don't have one. Like, wait a second, who are you? Why are you pulling? Like, who are you to ask me these things? 
You have to orient the command with the one who gives the command. Why should I obey you? Who are you to me? Sometimes I try this with my kids when, when they're being rebellious or disobedient to address them and to remind them, you're my daughter and I love you. I'm your father. You try to ground all of the instructions in the context of relationship. Who are you and who am I and who are we to one another? And that's what Jesus is doing here. See, it's easy to picture Jesus in this theological smackdown here. Like one after another is coming and Jesus is this great debater. He's got answers to everyone. You know, he's the greatest apologist that ever lived. And if Jesus lived in the day of YouTube, we'd have all these videos of like Jesus destroying, Jesus obliterating the snowflake Pharisees or something. I don't know. Like it'd be some kind of crazy. Like you can picture it like that, right? That's not what Jesus is doing. In love, he is doing the very best thing for these people. He's showing them who he is. So that hopefully they can come to terms of how to respond to him. Jesus says, who is the Christ? Who is the Son of God? Or who is the Christ? Whose son is he? Verse 42. They said to him, son of David, which is true. Notice, Jesus doesn't fight that. He accepts that, but he wants to expand that category so that they have greater clarity. He is the son of David, but he's more than the son of David. So verse 43, he said to them, how then is it that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Saying, and again, here it's really tricky in English because we miss stuff in translation. So in the Old Testament, when you read the word Lord and it's all in caps, that's the proper name of God, Yahweh. That's his covenantal name that he revealed to his people by which he was to be called to distinguish him from the gods of the nations. Yahweh says to my Lord, my commander, my king, the one that I follow, Yahweh says to him, so this is King David saying, God is addressing my Lord. So Jesus says, how, how, how can David call his son, who would be under him, his Lord? He must somehow be greater than David. And they have no category for what this must be. He continues to quote from Psalm 110, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus says, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one's got an answer for him. Friends, I want you to see this from Psalm 110, from the passage that Jesus is quoting, because Jesus wants you to understand who he is who gives these commands and demands this obedience. He is the promised son of David. He is king. Look at Psalm 110, verse 1. Psalm 110, verse 1. He is a king. Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. They're going to be the ottoman of your throne. You're going to rest your feet on them. Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. This is a staff that a king rules by. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. He will command his people. He is the authoritative king, greater than David, his father. But he's also the promised priest in the line of Melchizedek. Verse 4 of Psalm 110, Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He doesn't simply command his people. He's also the one who delivers, the one who redeems, the one who intercedes for, the one who has compassion on his people so that they will be saved as long as he lives, which is forever He's the commander, he's the deliverer, he's the king, he's the priest, he is also the conqueror. Psalm 110, verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. 
let that image sit for a minute. He will shatter chiefs, all, all those who would contend for supremacy, shattered over all the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. That's a picture of victory, returning from battle, in your rest, in your glory. He is the one who will judge in his wrath. Jesus is the king, he's the priest, he is the conqueror, he is the judge. Do you know him? See, everything else hangs on this. None of our questions make sense until we learn the answer to Jesus' question. We can never respond to him as king until we understand he is king. Do you know him this way as the one who left glory to take on flesh, to come and to serve, to teach, to bear our abuse, the abuse that we put on him because of our sin, to take our shame, our guilt, to bear the wrath of God as he hung on a cross, to declare it is finished. Do you know him who was taken down off the cross, who was laid in a tomb, the stone was rolled in front, but listen, on the third day, the stone was rolled away and Jesus emerged victorious from the grave. He ascended to the right hand of the Father where he reigns as king, even now, interceding as the great high priest, pleading for you in this moment that you would see him and put your trust in him, that you would know. Do you know him, the one who is reigning in glory now, but one day will return to manifest his kingdom on earth as the greater son of David, the king over all creation? Do you know him? Have you put your trust in him? Do you love him? Friend, do you know how we will endure in hard obedience? Do you know how we can embrace humbling obedience? Do you know how we can live with a wholehearted obedience full of love for our Savior? It's only as we respond to him as king who already is king. I get, I get why some people don't want to follow Jesus. Because his commands are hard. And apart from sufficient view of his grace and his majesty and his glory, you'll never make it. Do you see him as king? Will you follow him? All the hard places he's calling you to go. Let's pray that he would give us grace.